Hello, mostly from Austin. Welcome to episode 160 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Friday morning, March 27th, 2020. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek, and we have a guest. Ah, there's someone else here. Hi, I'm Jen Daskal. Hey, Jen's with us. You're not Zoom bombing? (laughs) Bobby, are are you at the Supreme Court of the United States? Well, you're not there, so I thought I had to be. Oh, Bobby, show, showing off your, your, your sophisticated facility with the choose your virtual background feature in Zoom again. I don't like that. I have other options for you. So we, we you know, because, oh, now you're on the bridge of, of the MCC 1701D, if you're listening. <laughs> so we, uh, we, ha- we had the terrible idea to actually record this by video again. So some of you may be very confused because you have no idea what we're talking about right now. Uh, but uh, I'll do Bobby's part. It's Friday. It's March 27th. Uh, it's a little before 10 central time. Um, and what's that? I said that part. I said you the date. You didn't say what time it was. I did not say what time it was. That's true. So some that, stuff I'm just saying. Okay. <laughs> the, the pandemic has thrown you off. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. I won't deny that. Uh, or as we, as, we, as we know this date in my house, day 15 of no daycare. Oh, yeah. Jen, how are you holding up? How's Washington? I am good. It turns out there's a good reason I did not choose a career as an elementary school teacher. It's not my forte. <laughs> what sort of topics have you been teaching in your home school? Uh, we've been learning about the Revolutionary War, and mm-hmm. the much harder challenge for me is teaching division, it turns out. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't discover it in context because my kids are older now, but just in regular, you know, parents trying to help with the math homework. I had the same experience almost every Gen Xer has now had at some point of discovering that I don't know when it happened, why it happened, who decided this, but somebody changed math. And I don't know why they changed math. It seemed like it was working pretty good before. There's some totally other math now and I can't do it. Um, I'd much rather teach the revolution than anything, even arithmetic. Yeah. Fully agree. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I think that there should be like a true and a false, but it turns out there's not. Kind of like the state of the world. I, I feel like this new math has been on display though in some of these White House briefings. I mean, Dr. Brooks yesterday said, you know, 19 states have relatively small numbers of cases, therefore 40% of the country is fine. <laughs> as a, maybe you put it this way, someone described that as electoral college uh, public health math. I mean, I you know, I. Uh, I, I, I really, I, I find it hard that this keeps getting dumber, but it keeps getting dumber, um, even as more and more people are, you know, dying. So, yeah, yep. the frustration levels are, we're going to have to invent whole new scales. The, the old scales are broken. Um, at least for the people who are watching on video, you can finally see the facial reflection of my frustration as opposed to just <laughs> Bobby's description of it. <laughs> and you can see the joy I take in egging you on. I mean, as long as your internet connection holds up. Yeah, we'll see. Um, this is, uh, I think the video's already been a little bit choppy. I'll be curious to see what the recorded version looks like. By the way, are we recording? Supposedly. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> so, case, the, the icon's on there. We're all the just like you are. Uh, so what are we talking about besides just catching up on, on, on our podcast? Can I just say real quick on Zoom? I noticed NPR the past few mornings, uh, Zoom is now advertising on NPR. I keep thinking advertising why, why are they spending any money on advertising i don't know anyone who's in, you know on zoom all day now 
Uh, I mean, there are a couple of schools that are using plat non-Zoomy platforms. I think uh, Microsoft Teams, I think, has had some some market saturation. But yeah, Zoom Zoom is printing money at this point. Yeah. Um, uh, money, some of which is going into pockets of members of Congress who apparently but bought Zoom early. Bought, yeah. bought early. Wait, is there really like a story about somebody investing in Zoom? Uh, there is a there is a uh, senator from Georgia who will not be named um, who dumped a whole bunch of stocks and then invested in online like you know telecommunications resources. Uh, I might hire that person to invest my money for me. That sounds like yeah. Oh, oh, look, Steve's giving me the look. He's giving I mean, me. The look. It's going to be hard for her to invest that money week. from 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 jail. But you know whatever. Well, you think that you think there's actually there's a legal issue. Was there no. There, I mean, there might have been, but the Stock Act is a civil penalty, not a criminal one. So, no. Yeah. Well, we talked last week about how it ought to be the case that members of Congress are forced to have blind trust um, and or some version of that. And so let's ditto that comment here. What new can we talk about this week? Hmm. Um, th more cases. Uh, Pandemic stuff. Still no, still no Defense Production Act invocation. Um, Let's see, still no federal quarantine. Uh, the president's plan to reopen by Easter and get things raring to go. Um, so I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the limits, the significant limits on the ability of the federal government to compel um, changes or the lack of the ability to compel changes to state and local decisions on public health movement restrictions. Because the three, the three of us are now all under shelter in place orders, right? Oh, uh, we are, definitely. We, we've been we are as of Wednesday. Yeah. And wasn't there something in not, Washington? Wasn't there something technically a shelter in place. It's a if you're not an essential business, stay closed order. Did you get a text message about this? I was supposed to, but I didn't, which raises concerns <laughs> about the effectiveness of the DC surveillance system. So the only thing worse than a confusing uh, emergency text message from, is not getting it. Yeah, this is like finding out they don't have you on the list. Right, like, I, live, I live about a block from Maryland, so I wonder if they got confused. <laughs> the They're GPS monitoring. Like yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. Uh, so we have some pandemic stuff to talk about. We're going to talk about, um, because we have Jen, some of the surveillance implications coming out of uh, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, there's actually some non-pandemic-y national security news that we thought we might, you know, heavens to Betsy, talk about on a national security law podcast. Some good old-fashioned terrorism-related military detention and terrorism prosecution news involving um, a topic that used to be one we talked about a lot. It's been quiet for a while, but it's back. The Beatles, Islamic State fighters, formerly British citizens, held in U.S. military custody now. Everyone's completely forgotten about that, it seems, but we haven't. We haven't. Nor, nor has the uh, Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, uh, and it has a ruling that has greatly complicated things for the U.S. plan going forward. So we'll talk about uh, the decision in El Ghazuli versus Home Secretary, which dropped on Wednesday. Uh, we also have, uh, I don't know if you guys saw this yesterday, uh, the presiding judge in the 9-11 Military Commission trial at Guantanamo is retiring. <laughs> Imagine that. Shocking. Because they all. That's, I'm changing my background in honor of that. I'm looking now for a Guantanamo backdrop. Oh, God, spare us. Um, so, you know, the 9-11 the trial is about to have its fourth judge in three years, which, of course, is really conducive to, you know, speeding those proceedings along. It's ridiculous. 
right. And then uh, um, while Bobby looks for a new background, uh, Bobby has actually also caught up on his television watching. So, 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 the frivo- so for frivolity today, we're going to educate Jen a little bit about uh, Westworld episodes one and two, and also the, the season finale of Picard, which Bobby and I both had, a, I think, a similar reaction to, which eh. is, really? Yeah. Like, uh, really? 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 <laughs> That's as high as I can go. Yeah. Well, anyway, all right. So where should we start? Should we start with um, shelter in place orders and the president's not so power to mess with them? Okay, so there was uh, a growing wave of comments from Trump himself and from others, whisperings about the president, for obvious reasons, with his focus only on the economy and what it might mean for his electoral prospects. Um, That's not fair. I wouldn't say it's focused only on the economy, but his dominant focus on the economy. Um, Becoming more and more focused on telling people that we got to get things open got to be up and running. Easter sort of becoming a fixation as a, as a date by which he wants at least parts of the country uh, moving towards more, uh, well, uh, moving away from shelter in place, getting people to get back to business. Um, and since none of the closures, including the ones we're under, are creatures of federal law, raises an interesting question. What business is it of his? He can have an opinion, like all of us, and of course, the president's opinion is going to be far more visible and influential in some ways. Um, but can he actually compel this result? Um, I think it's good to start by acknowledging he clearly has the ability to advocate for this. In fact, there's, there's quite a tradition of presidents advocating for state and local authorities to take a different approach to public health in this context than they might otherwise prefer to. Best recent example being Barack Obama really blasting Chris Christie and Governor Cuomo, so New Jersey and New York, when they took a, uh, a more strict approach using state powers to quarantine during the Ebola crisis a couple of years back, or a few years back now. Uh, and the White House really blasted them. There was a lot of back and forth. If you go searching for headlines from back then, you'll see a lot about it. But it was all bully pulpit stuff, at least as far as the public record indicates. It looks like it was all uh, argument. The president speaking up and also someone from the CDC, some guy named uh, Dr. Fauci. (laughs) Guy's been there for a while. Anyways. um, Perhaps perhaps not long at this rate. Well, we'll see. He seems to be doing okay walking that tightrope. The point being that it's perfectly fair, I think, for the president to argue for a different approach. I don't agree with him on the policy on this one, but. Um, I think it's within his power certainly to do it. That one will have a big effect. Um, when this president speaks, it's not just the bully pulpit, it's this whole ecosystem of amplification, uh, people both directly changing their views, they're persuaded because of the stock they put in his word, uh, incredibly. Uh, but also those things like certain Fox personalities and others who will start changing their narratives to track his and that will begin to create facts on the ground in terms of who believes what. And for some politicians at the state and local level, that's going to begin to hem them in. I mean, we're, I mean, we're already seeing that. I mean, the, the governor of Mississippi, right, defined just about every business in the state as an essential business for purposes of his shelter-in-place order. I mean, you know, I think... Oh, and, so he kept the shelter-in-place order, but then defined it so broadly, purposely, so as to have it both ways? Trying to. And I mean, I think, I think we're heading for this really, I think, 
unfortunate division, not between red and blue states per se, because I think, you know, like Jim DeWine in Ohio, for example, has been very progressive on this stuff, but between maybe especially red, dark red states, right, and, and purplish and blue states, because, I mean, that's where, you know, so I, I want to talk about what Trump actually could do formally, but even practically, I mean, a world where you've got shelter in place orders in California and Washington and Oregon and New York, you know, but not in the middle part of the country um, is a world where, you know, the virus is going to spread because these borders are porous and it's already in almost all of these states. Well, there's a legal issue. What do you guys make of these early signs? Uh, Alaska and a few others are beginning to do uh, interstate border crossing inspections or quarantine orders. Um, anything wrong with that? Or is that just a traditional application of a governor or states uh, prerogatives to protect public health within their own borders? So I think, I mean, you know, I think in, in general, obviously travel restrictions amongst the states raises constitutional issues, a uh, whole host of different constitutional issues. Um, in this circumstance, it seems that um, there's probably a sufficiently compelling reason to place limitations on travel, um, if not, you know, outright bans would raise a different set of issues. But if what we're talking about is inspection and or temporary quarantine orders, um, my sense, and I'd be curious what you both think as well, but my sense is that that probably could be justified as tailored to a compelling need in this particular circumstance. So I, think, I mean, I think part of the problem is, I mean, so Texas, um, Governor Abbott has now followed Governor DeSantis in Florida by um, imposing a mandatory 14-day self-quarantine requirement on travelers to Texas just from New York and New Orleans. Um, and leaving aside that, you know, I don't know why you would, and just people flying from New York and New Orleans. So if you drive from New Orleans, you're fine. Um, and I guess, you know, Jen, my concern is, I, I actually think the more the bans look like what Abbott and DeSantis are doing. Oh, Bobby's now in the military commission courtroom at Guantanamo. Um, the, the, more that, the more the bans look like that, I think the harder they are going to be to survive constitutional scrutiny because they don't look narrow. Uh, it's not that they're narrowly, they don't look proportionate to the problem, right? That like, if you're stopping some travel, but not all travel, if you're, you know, and this is where I think the lack of a response from the federal government is a real problem, because if this were such a big concern, like a federal interstate travel ban, um, I think would be incredibly coercive, but actually might be defensible on the same grounds that you suggest, versus individual states saying we're going to block travel, some travel from just a couple of other states. I think that's just sort of belying the extent to which the virus is everywhere. And it sort of smacks of, of at least some politics, maybe not capital P politics, but small P politics that just, you know, I don't think would, would hold up well in court. No, I agree with you about that. I think that the extent that we're talking about travel bans that are targeted against particular localities, particularly as the information is shifting so much, and particularly with all those loopholes that you just mentioned amongst many others that one could think about, um, I think those are, are much, much, much more difficult to defend. And they just don't make sense. I mean, they're just, they're just dumb, um, but but that's not necessarily a good argument in court. But I but well, I do dumb dumb because they're under inclusive. Exactly. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this so that raises the question of the degree of scrutiny. As we all know, if if it's equivalent to rational basis review, then under inclusiveness, over inclusiveness is not an obstacle to, is not a ground to strike it down. Um, the, the governments are allowed to 
bite off what piece of the problem they choose to or try to start with at least. Um, so if that's the mode that's applied, then it would be fine. If it's strict scrutiny where you, you're supposed to have the tailoring nice and tight, that would be a problem. But it, it's not clear to me actually what degree of uh, precision would be required in the setting. If, well, presumably what we're talking about here is a dormant commerce clause challenge. And, and I don't know uh, the details enough to say for sure how that would be parsed out. I do think that there'd be a ton of deference to a state's plausible claim, as long as there's not some reason to think it's a red herring, if it does, in fact, appear to be, however hand-handed, a uh, legitimate attempt to deal with a public health crisis, even if over and uninclusive, I suspect it would actually be upheld. Right. But, so I think it's more than just a dormant commerce clause claim, though. It's, it, there's also a fundamental liberty interest in interstate travel, and that's yep. been talked about in the court in a number of different cases. So I think we're, we are in the realm of strict scrutiny, and as a result, I think the under-inclusiveness could and probably should be fatal if and when there were challenges in court. But I mean, so I, I, if we can put, I mean, the federalism stuff, I think is going to get really messy, but I, I, I want to get back to where Bobby started, which is the, what can Trump do? Um, and, you know, I wrote a piece for um, NBC's website about how Trump, like Bobby says, has no sort of overt authority to reopen schools, to order private businesses to reopen. Um, and that most of his authority is the power of persuasion. But I think th there's one big, well, there are two big exceptions. Um, one of which I think is clearly within his power and one of which I think is debatably within his power. So the first is he can order the entire federal workforce back to work, um, right? And you know he can order the director of OPM um, to send every federal employee to, to end telework um, categorically for federal employees who have offices. And, you know, there'll be some states where that's not a big deal, but there'll be plenty of states like Texas um, or Maryland or Virginia um, where that's a, and, well, this is not a state, which is another problem that we'll get to. Um, right. But like, you know, if Trump orders the entire federal government back to work, um, you're going to have all of a sudden this clash between federal employees, you know, defying local and state um, restrictions on their travel. And I mean, my, my sort of read of the limited case law here is, you know, states don't have the power to stop federal, federal employees and federal officers from going about their federal duties. So, you know, he could do that. Um, he could also uh, rescind his national emergency declaration from March 13th, um, which would have the effect of cutting off access to all of these funds, or at least he could tell states that I am not giving you any emergency funds until and unless you end all of your shelter in place restrictions. Um, that one I think might raise some real constitutional objections, but, 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 but ordering the federal workforce back to work, I think would not be constitutionally problematic. I think the, the con law is pretty clear that the local and state governments can't hinder the performance of the federal government's functions. Um, and I think that would cause it, that would throw a pretty big wrench into some of these jurisdictions efforts to enforce social distancing. I agree that the federal workforce would have a big impact in certain localized areas. I don't think it would be a drop in the bucket here in Austin. Um, it'd be a big deal in certain precincts around the nation's capital. It'd be a big deal in certain localized areas, but I think it would be a, a small drop and wouldn't uh, go very far towards his goal of actually restarting the economy, certainly. In fact, but if that's his goal, I mean, if that's his goal, yes, but if his goal is to punish, you know, state and local authorities who he believes are defying him, Right, I and think not do that, his bidding. Uh, 
Yeah, okay, so two things. He, he could have two purposes. One is the uh, perhaps misguided, perhaps not, but legitimate purpose of, of sustaining the economy. And then there's an illegitimate purpose of punishing people for not pursuing his own policy preferences within their legitimate realms of their powers. Um, setting aside those kinds of distinctions, I don't think he gets very much mileage uh, using the one thing that he very clearly can do, which is ordering the workforce back to work. Um, if we try to imagine the range of things he could do to actually get at the economic goal that, that I actually think is what would drive him here, whether we think it's electioneering or whether we think he's just legitimately interested primarily in keeping the economy going, which is a legitimate interest, that's, we don't have to sort that out right now. Um, he has obviously no existing statutory nor inherent power to command the states to do anything that would violate the anti-commandeering doctrine. He has no existing statutory authority that's broad and plenary that would preempt contrary state law, sort of a, a, a national you know, power over this exact topic. There's no such thing. There are little buckets of authority here and there. There might be things involving defense production. There are things involving critical infrastructure. And as you say, there's the federal workforce. Those things in combination, if pushed to their limits, probably can go pretty far towards poking rifle shot holes in the shelter in place regimes, but wouldn't restart the economy unless, unless maybe you could come up with some sort of critical infrastructure approach and then apply it to everybody. I'd have to look closer at the relevant statutes to see whether that's even plausible. Um, you want to say something on that, Steve? No, no, just, I mean, I mean, I mean this is, uh, clearly this is where we should end up. I mean, there's, the, there's I, I'm sure you guys saw the letter that Trump sent to all the governors yesterday. Um, Right. And, and the letter, I think, strikes me as exactly the right answer, which is, you know, once we are in a position where we have robust surveillance testing and can really sort of, you know, screen entire communities and isolate those who are infected or at exceedingly high risk. Right. Then, yes, we'll be in a position to designate certain jurisdictions, high risk, medium risk and low risk, and perhaps sort of approach the loosening of travel restrictions and shelter in place orders on that basis. The problem with the letter and the problem with this entire Fakakta timeline is that it is incredibly um, aspirational um, to believe that we are anywhere close to having that, that capability. I mean, there are still like symptomatic sick people in New York who can't get tested. And as long as that's true, how are we going to have a regime right. where asymptomatic non-sick people in Texas or New Mexico or Montana, right, are going to be able to have access to testing sufficient for us to deem their county low risk and to, you know, relax the shelter in place orders. I mean, it's just, there's a, I understand the impulse to want to reopen everything, but it's worth, it's worth making clear that like doing that before we're ready is only going to, you know, is, is not going to help the economy. It's only going to make it worse with the concomitant pressure on the medical system. But that leads us in, in a moment, to the topic of collecting information um, that is the linchpin for the place I think everybody, both President Trump, Governor Cuomo, and a whole range of people in between all want to get to, which is... Where that, young, that, that young woman governor in Michigan, whatever her name is? Uh, I, uh, it sounds like you're quoting something or referring to something there. I don't know what you're referring to. Trump literally said that about Gretchen Whitmer. Okay. Um, well, <laughs> good heavens. Um, so... Anyways, I want to close up before we get to that. I want to talk about one other thing which you adverted to, which is the actual thing that could be done in the meantime 
if we get to a point three weeks from now where the economic bite is overcoming some of these early stimulus sort of inflating effects and the president gets real anxious and the governors are still locked down or at least the counties and the cities are often real locked down, what if he leverages uh, control over discretionary allocations of aid, funding, materials? Um, so if, if he were to do it expressly, Let's start with the easiest and clearest case that's kind of most familiar to us to teach common law. If Congress were to pass a statute actually leveraging gov governors that way, saying, here's, here's a bunch of aid, but to get it, you have to repeal your otherwise preferred policies. Um, we know from South Dakota v. Dole and Sibelius that there's, there is a way that undue amounts of leverage and conditional spending kind of converts and converts it into a, a direct mandate, which would be commandeering, which is forbidden. But it's very hard to draw the line to distinguish what is too much coercion, whereas, or versus what is uh, just leverage. South Dakota Vidal says, well, that amount of money in that case was just leverage. Sibelius, that was too much. That was coercion. Um, Congress obviously isn't about to enact a statute since the, the parties are divided between the House and the Senate. And uh, we don't have to worry about a statute doing this. What we have to worry about is the executive branch either explicitly or more likely kind of subtly to, to varying degrees, uh, leveraging some discretionary spending. I'm curious what y'all think. I think that if you actually could prove that what's going on is, is actually conditional spending, you ought to analyze it more or less the same way you would with an express statutory condition, but you should be more demand, the court should be more demanding and reviewing it if it's not transparent. In fact, I think transparency and clarity of the condition is part of the South Dakota v. Dole analysis. And so that, that alone might be already part of the law. But I think that if you, what you have is sort of a behind the scenes messaging where the, the government's not publicly saying that we're conditioning the spending on this, but we're kind of letting Governor Cuomo know that they're not going to get the personal protective equipment unless they play ball on this. Um, I think that sort of subtlety actually endangers it constitutionally even more. Problem is, the state would have to litigate this and that would take time and it would probably take time beyond the window uh, in which all of this even matters. And so I actually think states can't constitutionally be uh, coerced in this way, but I'm very skeptical of their practical ability to get a TRO from a federal judge, you know, right away and then have that withstand attempts to get it stayed. I suspect that somewhere along the way it would get dragged out in a way that enabled the executive branch to get what it wanted out of that. What do y'all think? Yeah, I mean, I think that analysis is is exactly right, that um, the same rules that apply to the to Congress ought to also apply to the government. I think that uh, to the federal government, I think the hard part is um, actually finding what, what you would need to do to avoid that problem if it were something that the Trump administration decided to do is you would need to affirmatively require the federal government to distribute money rather than stopping something. And as you pointed out, the timeline on that is really tough to get into court and get a court to issue the kind of order that would require the disbursement of funds is, is, is likely not going to happen or happen in a timeline that would presumably provide a lot of pain to the states along the way. We're also, we're also back to the pretext problem. I mean, I think, you know, the um, South Dakota versus Dole, NFIB versus Sibelius, those are both spending conditions that appear on the face of statutes, right? Whereas, you know, when it's a um, spending condition that we're inferring 
from things the president has said publicly and privately, um, we're right back to the travel ban cases and whether you know, the, the condition can be inferred from statements that are not formally part of the policy. Um, you know, and I think, I mean, not for the first time and not for the last time, this is why I think pretext ought to be part of the analysis when it comes to executive branch conduct. But, you know, so long as it's not, I think it's going to be, you know, you, one more reason why, even if Trump is, as certain reports, I mean, I, there's a story in Politico yesterday that Trump is withholding disaster money from New York and California um, because he, the governors aren't cooperate, you know, co they're not playing nice, um, which is insane. Um, but even if that's true, like proving that in court in a way that's going to produce a final judgment where the money gets, you know, released in time, you know, I, 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 I share your doom and gloom. Yeah. Well, as you said earlier, the, the really important thing from a public policy perspective, where we continue to fail is the ever too slow distribution of effective and ample supplies of tests and people capable of administering them and the whole set of protocols around that and, and larger questions of gathering information for the circumstance where someone does test positive, what are our mechanisms to go backwards in time to figure out who they might've been exposed to or who they might've exposed themselves to. Um, Jen, as you know, uh, many countries, uh, Israel stands out as a much talked about example, have, have done some dramatic things uh, that are reminiscent in some ways of the ideas behind the terrorist surveillance program with call detail records, being able to use uh, the types of location data and contact data that comes from telephone movements and telephone calls uh, to try to rebuild where somebody was, who they were around, so that it's not just a question of interviewing a patient once they've been identified. Um, are, we, are we heading towards that in the United States? Do we even have the types of legal frameworks that would be needed if, if we thought that was the right way to proceed? Could we have such uh, frameworks? What, what do you think? Right, so the, these surveillance questions are, are really interesting and they're only gonna become more important over time as we try to figure out what information we need to keep us safe and to begin, as we've just been talking about, to return to some degree of normalcy. And I think here, it's really important to distinguish between um, population aggregate anonymized data, which can be used and is being used um, both by private companies. And now it's something that the EU is, is working with private companies and trying to get access to as well um, in a voluntary way between government and private companies to track things like hotspots and movement of people. And even um, there's a private company that was rating states about how well people were doing with respect to their stay-at-home orders. Um, um, oh, wow. Got an A, Wyoming got an F. I didn't actually look up what Texas got. I should have done that. Um, but um, so, so there's a lot of information that can be gleaned that can be quite useful from this kind of aggregate population level analysis where the data is anonymized. My view is that we ought to be really careful before we go down the road of doing the kind of individualized tracking that Israel's doing and, and a number of other countries are starting to do as well. Um, and, there's an, and before we do that, we ought to think carefully about what we're doing it for, how effective it is, who holds the data, all the questions that we normally think about it. How long is it retained? Who's it disseminated to? A whole host of questions. Um, and. So let's, so let's just think about the different uses that individualized 
access to individualized kind of contact movement data can be used for. So one is what Israel is doing, which is using it to identify people whom they've identified a particular sick person and then they use the person's movements to identify others who have been in the vicinity of that sick person and notify that person. So that obviously has health benefits if done appropriately. But here too, I think before we start going down that road, we need to think about what, how good is that data? So who exactly is being notified? Is it every, are they doing it based on cell tower pings. Um, so that could either be really large numbers of people, um, depending on the, the concentration. It could be also be really large swaths, big, huge areas, depending on, on how big of an area we're talking about, um, how far apart the cell phone towers are. So, so there's a question about that, and there's a question about what people are supposed to do with that information. Um, so that's one kind of use of this data. There's another use that you could think about, and here too, countries are starting to do this, which is to use it to enforce quarantine orders. So you have to stay at home, and then people who are subject to quarantine orders, their cell phones are monitored to ensure that they actually do stay in home, and that can be backed by civil fines or potentially something even more extreme, depending on what road we're going down. Um, Just on that real quick, uh, all the adults will figure out what teenagers long ago figured out, which is if necessary, leave your cell phone somewhere so that you can go elsewhere without being followed. I mean, without ankle monitors, you know, this seems like a pretty defeasible system for someone who wants to. You haven't, you haven't low-jacked all your kids? I won't confirm or deny that. But there's, so there's also, so some, so there's also apps that are being developed and that are being used in some places where people who are subject to quarantine orders are being told to download, download apps on their phone and they're remotely pinged um, and within 20 minutes they have to upload a picture of themselves which is date and time stamped which shows them in their home and if they don't then they're violating the quarantine orders too. So there's all kinds of ways in which we can use tracking to enforce these orders. Here too I think before we kind of go down that road we ought to thought, think about what the predicate is. Would we do that for everybody? Do we do that for people who have been proven to violate orders? Um, so I think there's a whole host of questions there as well and then this is not just something that the government is going to have access to. So there are a lot of companies that are developing apps that would allow um, us to download on our own phones apps that either can identify whether somebody may have an elevated temperature near us or if there's enough good data that, that you're in the vicinity of somebody who is in fact been tested as sick. And you could think about, you know, we, we tend to think, at least in the United States, that data in the hands of government is so much more dangerous than data in the hands of private sect, private, private individuals. But you start thinking about all the vitriol and abuse that has already been kind of imposed on people of ethnic Chinese descent based on, at this point, a complete ignorance and unknown assumption that, at least initially, was we were, as, as some of our great leaders were talking about the disease as the Chinese disease. Um, that they were more likely to be infected. You think about all the kind of abuse that we as individual citizens might kind of impose on somebody that we either suspect wrongly or rightly based on some ping on our phone is, is a carrier of this disease. So there's a lot of really hard questions on this particular issue to be addressed. It seems like maybe we're not likely to actually go down this pathway since we don't really have the existing legal and practical infrastructure in place yet and and there's obviously a dominant perspective in the white house that what we need to do if anything is kind of minimize the severity or 
play down the severity of the situation, lest that undermine economic uh, performance. And so it's kind of hard to see how we would get any new frameworks out of Washington. Um, I suppose, therefore, you might assume that maybe what you would see is in some corners, some state level legal and policy innovation in this respect. Um, in fact, I wouldn't be shocked to learn that maybe in some places, some things are being attempted at the state and local level that um, are along the lines of what we're talking about here, although I don't know any examples yet, but maybe as the situation gets worse, we see some of that attempted as well. All right, have we run uh, Pandemia to the ground? Uh, I'll just say that uh, uh, the president's in the middle of a tweet storm because he's mad at GM for not producing ventilators as quickly as they as quickly as he thought they'd be able to. Physician, heal thyself. Uh, Defense Production Act, invoke thyself. <laughs> hey, he invoked it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, wait, screenshot that. That's great. You need the blinking for that to work. I was just, I was, I was just rolling my, I, I was rolling my eyes very heavily for those of you. Who yes, have, yes, yes. Just for those who are following closely at home, to decode that, the president loudly invoked the Defense Production Act, but invoking it just begins the process. It doesn't actually accomplish anything. You actually have to then issue orders to particular industries or entities to do this or that. Um, and at least as far as the public record indicates at this point that I've seen, um, no Defense Production Act orders of any kind have been issued. Um, the authority has been delegated to Health and Human Services it's in the hands of Secretary Azar. Um, maybe there's been something, but I think we would have heard about that. Uh, and most of the commentary has been that the president, by invoking it, was setting the table in case of need. Break glass in case of need. There's, there's the glass. Um, hasn't broken it yet. But he is tweeting at GM that they should try harder to make more ventilators. A lot of mixed messaging. Why don't we turn our attention to uh, a more traditional national security topic? Uh, we've got the decision in El Ghazuli versus Home Secretary out of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom. And this shoots a hole in uh, what appeared to be the U.S. government's policy for how it was going to deal over the long term with uh, the two detainees, Alexander Cote and Shafi al-Sheikh, the two members of the so-called Beatles who are in U.S. military custody. Why are they in U.S. military custody? Why, they're in U.S. military custody because they could no longer reliably be kept in Kurdish military custody. Well, why was that? Well, that was because the Trump administration precipitously uh, uh, backed away from all the things we had been doing in alliance militarily with the SDF forces and put them in a position where they had to fend for themselves against the combined onslaught of the Assad regime and the Turkish government and detention arrangements uh, partially collapsed all around them, putting at risk the ongoing detention of a huge number of Islamic State fighters, a small number of which uh, were people of special interest to the United States that we were actually able to get our hands on in the midst of that terrible transitional moment. Um, and so we ended up with, with at least a couple, at least these two, and I think maybe one or two more, military detainees who are now being held for the duration of hostilities, presumably under that framework, uh, most likely somewhere in the Kurdish region of northern Iraq at some special operations administered facility, presumably, uh, or maybe some sort of joint facility with uh, with. Iraqi Kurdish forces. In any event, 
we've got them uh, under our control is the way that the public record indicates it. And at some point, there surely would be litigation surrounding this, just as there has been over the years at Guantanamo and had been over the years in Afghanistan. Um, it hasn't happened yet. And why that is, is probably because it was clear from the, from the earliest days that the U.S. government's plan was, in fact, to follow through on an indictment of these individuals, um, charged direct participation in all sorts of heinous crimes. Um, but there was a catch, and the catch was that there was good reason to believe U.S. case when it comes to going to trial, especially for capital punishment, which is what we'd be seeking, would depend on getting mutual legal assistance out of the who had had a criminal investigation open and had developed a case file on these guys. Uh, at least at one point in this recently published opinion from Wednesday, there's a line to the effect that the U.S. prosecution strictly depended on getting this information, that if the prosecution probably couldn't go forward without it. They got the indictment, that's one thing, but to get a conviction, another thing. So back in 2015, we did make an MLAT, Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty application to the Brits, asking for sharing of the evidence. Um, and it's come to a head because the United States will not give the usual diplomatic assurance that we won't seek the death penalty. Why not? Seeking the death penalty. Uh, and the Home Secretary had, in effect, waived the usual requirement of such assurance, bearing in mind that these guys are no longer British citizen, citizenship stripped. Um, the Supreme Court has said, not good enough, can't transfer the data. And now we're at a really tough spot. The, the government's choices, at least as I see it, are A, uh, give up on the death penalty, give the diplomatic assurance required, get the information, go to trial, get the conviction, and send these people to supermax for the rest of their lives. Uh, or B, try to proceed without the information uh, and see if you can get a conviction that way. And, and maybe it turns out we can do that, but up till now, the indication has been we can't. So, uh, well, I should say there's a third option. There's an option C, status quo, military detention, which could continue perhaps indefinitely where they are, or perhaps they get brought to Guantanamo. Uh, either way, option C seems like eventually don't y'all think uh, habeas bound at some point? Do you think that's right? Are we going to get habeas litigation unless they ultimately bring these guys in one way or the other for prosecution? So it seems it seems as a policy matter that it's a no-brainer that they should they should waive the they should they should provide the assurance they should prosecute these guys and that's I mean if if we've learned any lesson from Guantanamo and from the years of military de detention and the costs and the, the risks in terms of, of habeas litigation dragging on for a long period of time, it seems to me that that's an obvious solution where there's actually justice brought at the end of the day. Um, and we have, you know, there, it's not, you know, we, we tend to think that that's never possible, but we've seen in a very different context in the negotiation over um, a bilateral agreement between the US and the UK as part of a data sharing agreement pursuant to what's known as the Cloud Act, um, there have been assurances um, that the U.S. would not seek information that could be used, would be used in death penalty cases. So it's not unheard of. There's precedent for the U.S. Um, making those kinds of assurances to the U.K. in the past. So on the, uh, 
on the habeas front, I'd left out option D, which is to prosecute them in a military commission. Take them to get them out and prosecute them. <laughs> it, it, and that's why. And there's Steve's laughter is why. Uh, and yet we can absolutely imagine. Uh, but, but the real reason why it can't happen, of course, is if you don't have the evidence that would work in a federal civilian criminal trial to get a conviction without British cooperation, there's zero reason to think you'd get a different result in a military commission proceeding, given the, at this point, uh, convergence of the systems. It's not like it's not a beyond a reasonable doubt standard. It's not like the rules of evidence are that different. Um, I'm very skeptical that they have any more ability to get the case over the uh, finish line there than in a civilian case. So um, that leaves military detention as the, the exotic option. I'm, I'm less sure maybe than you are, Jen, that, um, that this would necessarily be viewed as an intolerable option from the administration's perspective. It has the great advantage of, for the, for, for the near term, kicking the hand down the road. The status quo, these guys remain in custody. Um, yes, there'll be habeas litigation at some point, but who knows how long it would take for that to resolve. Interesting question. What do we predict the result of habeas litigation would be on the baseline legal authority to employ military detention for these types of cases? It's not like there's ever been an Islamic State case at Guantanamo before. So we don't actually have any case law. Uh, we have lots of opinions uh, of the layperson sort. We have no judicial opinions on whether the 2001 or 2002 AMFs really do apply vis-a-vis or, or the, or the uh, NDAA for fiscal year 2012, which is the uh, sort of actually most proximate explanation of what the government's military detention authority is. Um, we don't know any of that would apply. We don't know that the courts would agree that an armed conflict continues vis-a-vis the Islamic State, given what the Trump administration has done to back us out of that conflict. Um, do you all think the U.S. government would win on those general legal questions, setting aside the factual showing necessary to link these guys to the Islamic State, which I think actually they could show that. I don't know if they could show a legal foundation. I mean, I think as we've talked about, I think ad nauseum, I think there's litigation risk anytime you're asking a federal court to decide whether the AUMF extends to ISIS and that that risk has only grown as our operations against ISIS have become less and less ongoing and, you know, sort of systematic. Um, I, I still think, Bobby, yes, the chances are the government would win, even if it has a hard time making out as much of a factual predicate as possible. But I think you don't want that mess. Um, and, you know, the, the question to me is, um, is the ability to seek the death penalty against these guys, like, so necessary that you're willing to put yourself into a corner where just by agreeing to forego the death penalty, you know, you'd, you, this, this, would, this would all go away? Yeah, I, I think that maybe the ability to let go of the death penalty would have a would be influenced a lot by the reactions of the family members of victims of the crimes that these guys were linked to. I did see at least one reference to uh, the Foley family maybe supporting the idea of making sure there's a prosecution and getting a conviction, even if the death penalty is off the table, that getting the, getting the conviction is the most important thing, which I think if I try to imagine, I couldn't possibly put myself in their shoes, but I try to imagine as best I can how I might feel if I were in their shoes. And I think that this highlights the, the 
big, one of the biggest flaws with military detention as, an, as a pathway in terrorism cases where you actually, you're not just trying to prevent future harm, but you actually have people with blood on their hands. Um, if you don't prosecute, you don't get any of the, uh, the punitive, cathartic, and, and condemnatory qualities that traditionally are associated with prosecution and getting the conviction. I would want that very much, I think, if, if I were uh, a family member. Uh, and if it was a choice between a, an indefinite military detention that would be the constant subject of litigation where in some ways the government would be put on trial versus a criminal process with strong evidence that would result in a condemnation and a life sentence in supermax for these despicable murderers I think I'd, I'd want that. And so it could be that the top cover the government would need to not pursue the death penalty here probably has to be provided by those family members, and maybe it will be. And after some period of time, they may go back to the Brits, perhaps, and say, all right, we'll, we'll give the assurance. Let's just make sure we get this conviction. These people have to be prosecuted, not because they're afraid of uh, habeas litigation, but because it won't suit the, the just desserts. Uh, that only a criminal process can confer. <sighs> can I show you a, a, a fun tweet? <laughs> we need a palate cleanser after that, yes. This is fun. Are you going to share screen? So this is, this is President Trump. So let me, let me show you the first tweet. Wait, so the, what is going on here? What is, what is, wait, so the first tweet, right? As usual, here's the first tweet. As usual with this General Motors thing, which has never seemed to work class. out. They said, right, they said they were going to give us 40,000 machine ventilators very quickly. Now they're saying it will only be 6,000 in late April, and they want top dollar. Always a mess with Mary B. Invoke P. <laughs> to which you might be wondering, what the hell is this? Yes, yes, so here, a few minutes later, he tweets, Invoke P means Defense Production Act. <laughs> He's the okay. one to do it, right? <laughs> to which my response is, who are you saying if only to? he could. Like, <laughs> to whom is this directed? The Defense Production Act is a statute empowering you, the president, to do... Now, he loves to pass the buck. Do you think his, is his audience there, Secretary Azar? Is this kind of like a way of shifting blame to Secretary Azar? Like, why isn't he acting on P? And by the way, I think we're, we're somewhere near a show title here. There's got to be a way to turn that into a show title. This 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 podcast invoke P. This podcast is invoking P. <laughs> it's his split personality. It's one side of himself talking to the other side of himself. I like that. I'm uh, I, at the moment. I'm changing my display name in Zoom uh, to invoke P. Invoke. Oh, lexicon grows. It grows. Um, I guess one one way to read that is he's he's trying to uh, signal to and prepare, preparing the battlefield to cast blame on Secretary Azar because President Trump did P previously and in doing so delegated to Secretary Azar all the authorities to take action. So this is a way of setting him up and or encouraging him to go ahead and do something. Or is it a ham-handed or poorly written way of saying to GM, if you don't do more or provide some sort of visible signal that looks good for me, I'm going to take action under the Defense Production Act. Um, you know, you can imagine a different president saying, 
we have the Defense Production Act, it's been invoked, we can use it, we prefer not to, but you're gonna give us no choice unless you have a different story for us very soon. Um, of course, that's all a day late and a dollar short. This whole thing should have been invoked and these sorts of arrangements and steps should have been taken as necessary weeks and weeks and weeks ago. Um, okay, that's a heck of a new show title. Should we... Wait, this is the same guy, the same guy who yesterday, not even yet, last night said, I don't really think New York needs 30 or 40,000 ventilators. Um, what are we going to do with them if they're, you know, if we have extras? Well, this is, you know, he's, he's having it, he's trying to have it both ways. He, New York he, is exaggerating the problem. Yeah. No, that's right. It's, when it's convenient to be one way, it's, it's one way. And when it's, it's split personality. It's, it's, a, it's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I've said this before. I'll say it again. My problem is not with the, you know, um, festering things I won't say on air uh, in the White House. My problem is with the politicians and elected officials who enable him. Can it be both? Does it have to be either or? Do I have to choose? There are plenty of despicable people in the world. We don't, we don't elevate all of them into positions of power and then turn into sycophants as opposed to, you know, following principles we used to actually take seriously. No, I fully agree with that. I just, I just object to the, to the idea that you have to pick between one of those two there you go. Can't make us pick. Um, I think we've run through our serious topics. Shall we pivot to frivolity and end on a happier note? If we must. I think we must. This calls for a, a backdrop change, though. Uh, you pressured me, and I got a video watching done at the odd hours. We can talk Picard, or we can talk um, S-World. Do you have a preference as to where you want to start? If we want, I mean, let's end happy. So let's start Picard. Okay. How do you like this, by the way? Backdrop. Great. <laughs> Wrong sci-fi show, bro. I don't care. This is a great picture. Look at this. What is that like veterans of foreign? But it's a VFW hall. It's a stormtrooper VFW hall. It's like. Stormtroopers don't fight. I guess they do. I guess they're all foreign wars. It's all that. It's all expeditionary. I feel like. Um, all right. So, uh. So, Picard, um, I was not happy overall with the quality of it. I felt like the number of times where I felt like they went all full basal exposition, oh, it's the so-and-so, let me explain, let me clarify, let me articulate what should just be inferred by the, by the viewer. There's a lot of that kind of hand-handed stuff that made you just racing to finish. I mean, it, it, it almost... I guess they were sort of trapped by the number of episodes they had, but, but boy, it was, it was all just plot requires this, plot requires that, let's dash across the desert, let's duck into a cube, let's find my sister, let's do this and that. Um, it just didn't feel the same sort of care and quality that we had on, on the first part of the two-part season finale. So I guess I was doing fine with the episode for about 45 minutes. Um, and then, all, and then all the wheels came off, right? And then, like, you know, like, when the Federation fleet shows, like, when, when retired Will Riker has somehow amassed a fleet of 250 front line, not just, like, and he's like, you know, the Zheng He, the most advanced starship we ever brought. Yeah, and, of course, Starfleet's going to give that to a guy who's been hanging out in a cabin for 15 years. I know. You know it was so fan service as to be, I don't mind a little fan service in a, in a series that is nothing but fan service. And, oh, hello. So you say hi? Steve, who has joined you? 
This is Sydney. This is my younger daughter. Hi, Sydney. Hi, Sydney. She's a little confused right now because she can't hear anything and she doesn't understand why there are so many things on the screen. She's probably wondering what I'm doing at a stormtrooper bar. Seriously. <laughs> uh, but so, so I was like cool right up until Will Riker shows up at the head of an armada. That and was then, ridiculous. And then there's all the like the, you know, reanimating Picard into, you know, the golem. I mean, come that, on. I, I really, so I thought it was sweet and fine and they were, they were killing him off. Um, and it was a, it was a decent end of the run. And then they pull this Harry Potter stunt. Um, I really disliked it. Um, in Harry, Harry Potter slash every sci-fi series ever when someone dies. It was and, you know, like, Hey, here's your brand new perfect body. And, uh, and he says, Oh, please tell me you didn't make me immortal because a five second conversation with, uh, Data's memory patterns has convinced me that'd be the worst thing ever. Hey, no worries. We fixed it so that like you may have like maybe five, 10, 15 years left, probably not even that much. And he's thank God, thank you. I mean, I just My phone? I just think that it didn't none of that rang true to character, none of it rang true to uh, what pe what most people would be doing or saying in a situation like that. Well, you had died and you've got this experience. And it's just joshing around with everybody enjoying the new body but also i mean but also the, can we talk about data i mean so you and i were both right that data did indeed show up um but then data goes all good place like i mean if, i don't know bobby if you watch the good place but the data's whole speech at the end about why he wants to terminate his existence is exactly is the entire series finale of the good place uh, yeah, yeah it's like it's literally like the exact same conversation they all have about how they actually want to be able to end their existence in the good place. Interesting. I, and, and, and for the same reasons, because mortality is what makes life worth living, right? Because the human experience is defined by the fact that it ends. So I just didn't find that persuasive at all. And I realized that that is how some people would view things. That's not remotely how I view things. And the idea that what gives human existence meaning is the, is the uh, scarceness or the precariousness of it and the certainty that it ain't going to last, as opposed to saying that it's love, that it's relationships, that it's the, it's the good you can do in the world while you're there. And, you know, I'm not going to import into this conversation my own religious beliefs as, as a Christian, but uh, I just saw that and I thought, that's a, that's a hell of a way to look at the world that the, that the, that the meaning comes from the certainty that it ain't gonna last. Um, I thought that was kind of a depressing view, and it, it didn't. It didn't speak to me. Um, all right. Well, so so sorry, Jen. Go ahead. No, I haven't. I haven't seen any of those shows, so I can't weigh in. But I did just rewatch with my children the 1984 Karate Kid, um, which, if you haven't yes. seen it recently, I highly recommend it. Um, and the crane pick is just as good the second time around. Um, but. Oh my God. Um, I missed this when I saw this as a child, but there is a great um, subtle, but there's a great critique embedded in there about the Japanese internment, um, which I had missed as a child. And then yeah. probably the other best, my favorite other part of the movie, which I also missed as a child, was when at the very end, Ralph tosses his girlfriend the car keys and says, it's the 80s, I guess you can drive. <laughs> now, is it, is, is it Karate Kid or the Karate Kid Part 2 that has Glory of Love in it? 
It was not, that was not in it. Oh no, it was. Yes, Glory of Love was in part one. Yes, you're absolutely right. Yes, the song, the soundtrack is amazing too. I, the original one. I have not yet seen the remake. Glory of Love, Glory, you know, Glory of Love is the, um, oh, Cindy is trolling through my Twitter right now. Um, uh, Glory of Love is the, is the uh, model, is the impetus for um, uh, Lost in the Woods from Frozen 2. Oh, there we go. Bobby's in the dojo now. Um, all right, before we totally, before Cindy starts tweeting as me and declares P of her own, um, can we talk about Westworld? <laughs> yes. Oh, sorry, I'm still laughing. And, and by the way, just before we leave Cobra Kai, have y'all seen these, uh, I forget which insurance company it is, uh, but these commercials with the guy that's the Cobra Kai dojo leader from the original uh, Karate Kid, where now he's like sweet and calm and has koala kai. Oh. This? Oh my God, it's great. Okay. I just, I, I just put up a whole screen. So I have two screens going, one with this and one next to it. And I just put up a whole screen of Elmo pictures. And Cindy just clicked on the Amazon link to buy an Elmo plush doll. <laughs> and, uh, and three. <laughs> no, Cindy, stop. I'm going to move you to my other legs so that you can't spend any of daddy's money. Um, all right, Westworld. <laughs> all right. Um, Elbow. Okay. Uh, the first one, let's talk about the first episode in the world, because there are two very different episodes, obviously, setting up different strands. Um, I really liked episode one. I really enjoyed it. I bet you did too, Steve, I'm assuming. Um, I thought the, the continuity was there, but also the distinction, like setting up what, you know, season three is going to be this sort of civil war between the, the good robots and the bad robots with humanity caught in the middle. Like, it's all there. Well, there were just so many nice little touches. Sorry, I'm distracted. I'm trying to change my background to an appropriate. <laughs> so um, no, one, no one can hear you anyway, so it's fine. You can't hear me? Uh, when you do this, you fade in and out, which I'm sure is going to be great for the people listening at home. I got it. Okay, I'll stop messing around with that now. Just leave Cobra Kai up behind me and I will face my microphone so that we don't have a problem. How's that? Better. Good. Um, so the, the uh, Parche Domino. Parche Domini is the show type. Uh, spare us, oh Lord. Uh, this whole thing with Dolores talking about how when she's when she's speaking to the down security guy right before he gets killed, and she says, "You know, you you guys, you, you're idiots. Humans are idiots. You freed yourself. Presumably, she's saying freed yourself from religious belief, which you know irks me, but I'll let it go. It's TV. Uh, you freed yourself from religious belief, but but then there, then you built the new gods, and and now you're toast, basically." And then the show title, Spare Us, Lord, setting up this idea that Dolores herself is setting up that she's the vengeful God come to wreak vengeance and usher in a new sort of, uh, it's very, it's very from, from my perspective, like very Old Testament-y. And of course, it highlights the fact that her name, Dolores, Dolores is, you know, is a, a name that signifies Mary of Sorrows. It's derived from that. And I think that's been her her storyline has been a very sorrowful one before, but now it's signifying more the the sorrow one has when there's a vengeful God coming after you. Then episode two picks up the theme with, of course, so who's who's going to be on the other side of this? Might there be a human uh, slash AI slash synth uh, alliance against vengeful Dolores and her cohorts, which will also be a, a, a pan- species thing because you got Cal or, or Caleb who's going to be I guess brought into her side of things because he's he's on the outs in society and he, he's been set up as a character who's got ample reason to hate what's happening in the current world so might be down for the revolution um, 
And the whole thing with the synths, of course, is directly, I'm trying to reference Picard. Um, I thought the two sh shows kind of converged, right? Yeah, yeah a little bit. Um, yeah, so so I, like I, I like to talk about, I mean, I, so, you know, you and I have different approaches to organized religion. So I found, I found that stuff less, less problematic. Um, I'll just say that, that I thought the, I thought the Dolores setup was great. I love the sort of, you know, the Rehoboham, sort of how that's going to loom over, over all of this. I think we got a clue in episode two about what that's about. Um, I don't remember the actor's name, but the Sirach, the character we meet at the end of episode yeah. two, you know, we've solved everything. We fixed humanity. Everything's great. And then something came along and messed it up. So that explains the teaser trailer with the, you know, divergence detected thing. Right. Like we're trying, we got a steady, steady equilibrium that Rehoboth or whatever it is, is uh Rehoboham Rehoboham sorry is is helping us to manage and uh and now there's some outside forces screwing with it it all it is all very Isaac Asimov foundation-y in that respect but also I mean I find uh, maybe they're dumbing it down for people like me but I actually understood what was happening in both episodes as it was happening like even with Maeve it was pretty clear that she was in a different simulation because same characters but they didn't recognize her Right, like yeah, that was that was. I thought they tried to do that out pretty quick from clues to realization. Um, by the way, uh, do you, did you enjoy when she's uh, sort of backstage in the labs? Um, I'm sorry, when Bernard's backstage in the labs and Stubbs is out in the hallway fighting, you get these glimpses of what else, what other types of projects they're working on. Wait, no, but it's an Easter egg. Did you did you catch this? No, no, it's Benny Off and Wise. It's Benny Off and Wise with the dragon. With the dragon, I know. How great is that? Like, um, there's a huge Game of Thrones like shout out in the middle of episode two of Westworld. I loved it. I thought that was pretty great. Um, and, and how they have the you know the king and queen are just like practicing their their uh, feast subroutines while the fighting's going on in the hallway. I, I oh, Jen's done with us. Jen, Jen left us. Jen <laughs> just dropped out. Jen will jump back in at some point. Or she's just tired of all this of all this TV talk. Uh, I wouldn't blame her. Uh, we only have about five minutes left before I have to drop. Let me just say that uh, I, I was disappointed when Stubbs went for the battle axe. It was reminiscent of Bruce Willis in uh, Pulp Fiction. I thought he was going to go all medieval when the security guys came down the hallway and he's approaching them with the axe behind his back. But, but then they, they kind of didn't have the guts to get the camera right in there and have him go into any kind of sort of synth battle mode where he was faster and stronger than all them. They just, you see sort of in the distance in the dark hallway that he's swinging the axe, but you see no real contact. I, I expected more of a brave hearty um, use of that scene and that, that they didn't cash in on it. Um, um, I'll just say though is I'm in. Like, uh, you know, eight o'clock Sunday night, I'm ready. Would you agree that the, the scenes set in the, the season, the first episode scenes, all the stuff filmed in Singapore, yeah. it's all futuristic, it's all 2058 or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and the way that the story unfolded with a lot of nice slow pacing and, and some real suspense build up felt really different from episode two, which felt just like the prior episodes where there's a lot of real quick, um, you know, I'm not quite sure what's happening here. There's some, hey, Jen's back. Hello again. Um, anyways, would you agree that it felt, it felt like a different show very much, not just that they were with different characters. But that happened last season too. Like the, the season, like last season when they went to the present or the, or the beginning of Westworld, when the, the brother is in Hong Kong, like meeting and learning about the, right? Like they, they switched, like it, it was the same motif that we saw in, in previous seasons, I thought. But yeah, um, yeah. all right, we should, we, we've been, we've been yeah, not letting Jen talk nearly enough. So Jen, any, any other frivolity you want to share before we, 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 we 
end this poor excuse for a, a podcast? Um, so Karate Kid was my was my most entertaining movie I've seen in a while. Um, we've also we also finally finished the the Harry Potter references were were useful. We we finally finished all seven of the audibles of Harry Potter. I highly recommend. And both your love theme and your immortality theme are very prominent throughout that whole entire. Indeed they are. My youngest kid just finished book seven. And so I was able to ask her like, so what did you understand what's happening there? And she she completely tracked it. And I thought that was very interesting. I, I will say, of course, JK Rowling had an immense amount more canvas to paint on and more time and detail and all the rest to bring out these themes. To compare that to the to the final episode of Picard isn't really fair to the Picard folks who, you know, have to dash it off pretty quickly. But it but I felt like data as Dumbledore is what you should be imagining. <laughs> and and then and then Picard is Harry. Um, all right. Well uh, I've got I've got to go deal with this one. Um, we all have we all have daycare obligations ahead of us. So um, he's at Bobby Chesney. She is at Jen Daskal. Uh, yes. I'm at Steve underscore Vlad. If we are at NSL Podcast, um, this guesting is kind of cool. Maybe we should do it. Jen is the first person to be a guest on our podcast twice. That's right. Oh, I'm so honored. Thank you. It's like Jen. It's like Saturday Night Live when you get to five. It's a special club. Is that the I Alf Baldwin I, sort of? I have t- the T-shirt. Yeah, like the jacket. Yeah. Last time you gave me the t-shirt, which is great. I wear it around. I love it. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Well, before, before we actually, before we crash this thing, uh, I'm just going to say, uh, stay safe out there, everybody. Wash your hands. And I hereby invoke P. <laughs> Adios. V. Uh,